Good morning. Today we're going to read from Psalm 1, so please join me. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of the scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thanks, Rich. Well, good morning, guys. Hello. It's nice to see you from this vantage point as opposed to that one. Um, I want you to think about a time that you just felt like everything was as it should be. Like it, it was one of those moments, and we, and we find, like, usually we get this gift in retrospect, right? Where you're looking back and you're like, oh, that was, that was the time. But just one of those moments, maybe you were at a meal with family or friends. Maybe your kids were not screaming at you, pulling on your leg. Maybe you just were alone. <laughs> the introverts in here are like, I had a day to myself and nobody talked to me, and it was amazing. But just a day, a moment in time that you felt like everything is as it should be. We don't consider the question very often, at least in our minds, what, what is the good life? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean uh, to, to have goodness come into your life? We don't think about that often, but we, we express what we think a good life is every day. So every day we wake up, we make choices, and we say, this is the way to the good life. This is the path that leads to my happiness, to my fulfillment. And so today, we just kind of want to wrestle with this question. What does it mean to live a good life? And really, these are the, the questions that we've sort of been wrestling with as a church. If you've been here in the past couple weeks, you're new here with us, welcome. Um, we've been wrestling with these kind of bigger questions. Who is God? Who am I? And what does it mean to live a good life? And so today we're going to kind of focus on this third question. And we're going to start, we're going to use a story from the Gospels, uh, these books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these, autobi- or these biographies of Jesus. Um, and we're going to use a story from Luke 18 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you could turn over there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But I'm going to use this story as kind of a, a place to jump off from. So in Luke 18, a man approaches Jesus, and this man is described as a ruler, a man of means and status. And he proceeds to ask Jesus this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think really the question that this man is asking Jesus is, what what is the good life? Because from every measure, this man has a good life. He has the freedom to choose each day what he does. Uh, He has uh, status in society. He has food on the table He's respected by his peers, but he's heard about Jesus, and he's wondering if there might be something more. Is there something more to the good life? So he hears about this teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, and he approaches him, and he asks this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus is talking, the man can hardly wait, because Jesus gives him the exact answer that he wants 
Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and they say something that sparks a thought in you and your reaction is to stop listening to them and be like, oh my gosh, shut up. I have to tell you this amazing thing I just thought of and I'm no longer listening to what you're saying anyway. And that's what this man is doing. Jesus begins, he says, you know what to do. Keep the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Honor your father and your mother. And the man is so exuberant as Jesus is talking because I'm doing all of that. Like what if they they came out with research that said this diet will, will truly change your life. All you have to do is keep doing everything that you've ever wanted to do. We'd all be like, thank you. Although... We question the results. I don't know. But this man is, is affirmed by Jesus. And he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, good teacher, all of these I have kept since I was a young boy. The man is so pleased with himself. There's literally nothing else that he needs at this point. He's got wealth. He's got status. He's got family. And now there's this teacher of God who's been working miracles that's telling him he's doing it all right. That feels pretty good. But Jesus says, oh, there's one more thing. One more thing you lack. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. This is a hard, hard teaching. We want to lean into this today. We want to ask the question that the man asked of Jesus, what is the sort of life that leads to eternal life? Now, as humans, we ask these questions, and we've been wrestling with them as a church and so today, as we consider what does it mean to, good, to live a good life, we have to, we have to consider the scripts that we're given by our culture. Because everywhere that we go, from the shopping mall to the movie theater to a grocery store, everywhere we go is forming us. It has a vision for us. And so we receive scripts of what the good life looks like from our culture. We receive it from our world. And we want to look at that. We want to just unpack that a little bit because it has a lot to say about uh, the kinds of people that we are becoming. But we also want to see what is the life that Jesus has for us? What is the way that he's calling us to? Because you notice the last thing he says to this man, he says, come follow me. Jesus is inviting him. So how can we live in this sort of tension? How can we live in between the cultural scripts that we're going to look at and the way of Jesus? So to begin, I want to ask you just just to kind of look back in your memory bank, what was the first album that you remember owning? Anybody, anybody care to share? Debbie Gibson, Out of the Blue. Nice. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I feel like we should have clips for some of these. Just be like, this is what, that's amazing. Anybody, well, we'll get to this in a second. <laughs> now, for me, I'm going to tell you the first two albums I ever owned, and uh, this will shed a little light onto my upbringing. Um, the first one was a, uh, was a band called the Gin Blossoms. Does anybody know what that means? They're, yes, yes. Uh, McCarty, yes. I mean, just look at that Gen X angst up there. The new miserable experience. Life is horrible. I'm going to smoke a cigarette. Nobody understands me. And they wrote like, they were like post-Nirvana pop music. It was not like, they were not hardcore in any way. Like this is the, this is literally the like toughest thing about them. All their songs are like, you know. The other album that I remember, and I received these both for my 10th birthday, was, was an album I make no apologies for. Uh, it was a group called Boys to Men. 
That's right. They had this one guy that literally all he does is sing low notes and talk. He talks real low. And this was the first, this, these were my first albums. And these were the things that were forming me when I was 10 years old. Now, most of us, and this is probably begs the next question, how many of you have never bought an album? Anybody? Okay, so we, all right, we're not quite there yet. We're going to get there, I think, right? Most of us are old enough to live at a time when we bought music. Like, that was the thing that we did. We bought a collection of songs that an artist had put out, right? That's most of us. Now, how many of you have not purchased an album of music in the last year? Yeah, good, good number. Why is that? Because literally every song ever recorded is available to you for the low fee of $9.99, right? You, you have everything you could ever want if you just press click. Now, this may seem like an ultimate good, right? Anybody ever been overwhelmed? Like, you're like, I know I want to listen to music, but I'm just not sure what. And like, because you have infinite choices, you're a little like, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm a little paralyzed in all of this. Uh, there's a band called Arcade Fire, and they sort of point to this. They have a song called Infinite Content. And those of you who are, who are good at puns, you'll also uh, realize that this, this, this wordplay also can say infinite content. So the, the, album, uh, the song literally has two lines. It says, infinite call t- content, all your money is already spent on it. And infinite content, we're infinitely content. Arcade Fire, this genius play on words, they're saying, look, we have everything at our fingertips. We have the whole world literally in front of us. And we can pull up any part of it at any moment. So here we are, 21st century America, exceptional freedom. Now in his book, The Hacking of the American Mind, Dr. Dr. Robert Lustig describes the neurological chemicals that are uh, devising many of the patterns that we see playing out in our world. Now, his argument is essentially that our society is dominated by a singular brain chemical, that we should be in, engaging more than this one chemical, but really everything that is, that is sold to us, every, every habit that we um, sort of take on is sort of driven by this one chemical called dopamine. Now, here's an easy way to think of dopamine. Basically, think of anything awesome in your life. So, you got it? Like that, that uh, nice glass of red wine. Dopamine kicks in. Yes, thank you, Lord. Great, get great cup of coffee. Dopamine. Yes, Lord. Just you know, when you are uh, attracted to someone, dopamine is kicking in. Uh, when you have a great meal and you eat that really fatty, cheesy food with a lot of carbs, dopamine. Amen. Right. And Dr. Rustig, uh, Lustig writes that marketing, media, and technology have capitalized on subverting our brain physiology to their advantage in order to veer us away from the pursuit of happiness to the pursuit of, watch this word, pleasure, which for them, of course, equals the pursuit of profit. Now, every time, every time we pick up our phone and we open a social media app, we're engaging a portion of our brain called the reward circuit. Dopamine is kicking in. When you see that little heart, the red heart, with the number next to it, your brain's like, yes, I want more of that. When you scroll to the top of a Facebook or Instagram, you're just saying, I want more that, that is out there. I want to engage more of this. And so D- Dr. Lustig is saying, everything in our world is sort of saying, pointing us to, to more. You need more. You need to, to, to um, engage more. You need to um, consume more. 
And what Dr. Lustig is saying is that anything that always demands more from us wants to make us a slave. In the biblical language, it's bricks without straw. It's that you have to make more with less of you. And Dr. Lustig is saying we have to begin to see these processes playing out. That we were not meant to live on dopamine alone. So here's kind of, we, we've sort of looked at our culture, right? And it's, it's, it's pressing us. It's shaping us in its own image. So here we have one of the fundamental um, issues that we face as Americans trying to follow the way of Jesus. We live in a world of nearly infinite freedom. How many of you right now, you're hungry and you're thinking about, what am I going to eat for lunch when this guy stops talking? It's going to be delightful. We have infinite freedom, but our cultural script is constantly driving us to use that freedom in pursuit of more and more pleasure. And what we've begun to do is we've begun to mistake pleasure, instant gratification, with happiness, with contentment. Anything that supplies more dopamine on an like instantaneous basis for us is a good. And it's what is marketed towards us. It's what our culture is driving us to run harder and harder after. And this doesn't just play out in sort of addictive behaviors, right? Like those of us who are constantly feeling this drive that we have to do more, that we have to achieve more, that, that, our, that our good, the, the good life is always on the horizon, Right? You see this so much with students. They're like, when I get into that school, when I get that job, when I have this life, then my life will be good. The good life, the good place is always on the horizon. And so we're back. We find ourselves back at the crossroads that we left in Luke 18, where Jesus is dealing with this man. He says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. We're back at this place. And we have to ask ourselves, is the only answer... To run from the world? Is, this, is the world such a dark and scary place that we have, to, um, we have to give up all the joy? Is Jesus saying, sell all you have means like you literally can never have fun? Like you don't, you don't get to do any of that? Is that what he's saying? That any impulse in us towards success or achievement is somehow wrong or not the way of Jesus? Is that what Jesus is saying? You know one of the good things about our physiology is we need dopamine. Like, if you didn't have dopamine, you'd be high on serotonin, and you would never do anything, and you would waste away. So there's a place for our desires. It's a place for the things they're chasing. But oftentimes, we have to reorient these in the way of Jesus. Can I tell you something that is so important, and I think so important for many of you, if you grew up in church, and you were told constantly that you're not following the right rules, that you're not doing it right, that the good life is by keeping this script, and because you're not keeping it, that God is angry with you? Can I tell you something that will change your life? Jesus wants you to be happy. And, and if you hear nothing else than that today, can, can I say that? Because what we're seeing through this script that we sort of traced out is, is, is there is happiness that promises, um, that promises life that it doesn't actually hold. But Jesus is offering a different way to happiness. It's a different way, but he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be thoroughly yourself. He wants you to live genuinely out of who you are. He wants you to be content. He wants you to be joyful. But here's where we go wrong. We confused happiness with pleasure. And therefore, we resist the transformation, the life that Jesus holds out for us. And often this life, this life of happiness and contentment, comes through pain and suffering. 
It comes through things like repentance, like it just the, 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 the saying, I don't have it all together. But Jesus is holding out something for us, and he, he wants to give it as a gracious gift to each one of us. But our culture is seeking joy simply through freedom, by the endless use of freedom. But all we find is that that infinite use of freedom just makes us a slave. C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, says it this way. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What if, what if your impulse towards joy is the right one? What if that deep ache, C.S. Lewis in his autobiography calls it a stab of joy, that ache that says that things should be different, there should be a way towards contentment, I shouldn't always feel like I'm failing, that I'm not enough. What if that impulse is the right one? And what if the Bible has a lot to say about that? We're going to turn over to Psalm chapter 1. If you have a Bible again, it'll be behind us on the screen. I'm going to open up over there. The psalmist writes, he says, happy are those. I love that. This is the way the whole psalms start. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." And what the psalmist is saying here is that happy are those who aren't subject to the whims of the wider world around us. The psalmist operates under the assumption that we uh, don't get to choose whether or not we give our hearts and our affections to something. This is why he can draw such a hard and fast line in the sand. He says, "There, there are those who follow and meditate on the law of the Lord. And there are those that follow the way of sinners. And he's saying, look, we don't get to choose. We are creatures who will give our hearts and our affections and our time and our money to something. The novelist, American novelist David Foster Wallace, who, who did not appear to be a religious man at all to me, um, said, said as much. He said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. We are worshiping creatures we give our hearts to something. And for the psalmist, he, he's saying, look, worship the Lord. Put all your energy and your affections towards his way and his character, and he will shape your heart. And I love the imagery. There's two pictures that the psalmist uses here that are really powerful. And in verse 4, he says, the wicked will not stand, for they are like chaff. Chaff, like the, when, you, when you cut your grass the grass clippings that just blow away in the wind. They're easily moved to and fro. Kind of sounds like kind of chasing like a dopamine kick or trying to, try, trying to keep up, right? 
Like, there's just no weight to it. It's this light thing that's so easily toppled over. And he says, look, if we follow the ways that are handed to us, we're just left chasing our tails. We're left without any substance or any weight to us. We don't become ourselves. But look at the other image that the psalmist uses. The psalmist contrasts this image of chaff that is so easily blown by the wind with that of the righteous. The righteous are not mere mere grass clippings blowing in the wind, but they are a tree, solid and steady. When the wind blows, they may bend, but they don't break because they are planted firmly in God's good soil. Not only are they not movable, they're sturdy in God's soil, but they bear fruit. How many of you in here today would say, I want my life to bless others? This is the image that that the psalmist is painting. He's saying when you're planted in God's good ground, you not only have life for yourself, but your life is lived on behalf of the world around you. You become part of a healthy ecosystem, giving and receiving, providing shade and fruit. The psalmist is saying when when we delight ourselves in the Lord... He gives us weight. He gives us substance. I want to teach you two Hebrew words real fast that are going to be important. We'll have a test afterward. We won't. It's a joke. Um, Shalom. Anybody know that word? Yeah. It's a word that's kind of made its way into our larger lexicon, right? Shalom is the biblical word for God's peace. The peace of God is the place where God himself is present, where we bear fruit in relationship with God and with others. So how, how do we arrive at this sort of stability? How do we make it in this kind of way? The psalmist writes, well, delight yourself in the law of the Lord. The second word I want to teach you today is a word that you may not know. It's a word, you pronounce it kavod. You say kavod. Kavod. Kavod is the Hebrew word that's often used for God's glory, for the manifestation of God's presence. But here's another thing about kavod, is it denotes weightiness. It denotes something, like you ever been in a place, and we kind of talked about this at the beginning, like you felt that, that, that the moment you were in sort of transcended you, like that meal that with good friends or that moment where you're on a mountaintop and you're just like, there's something bigger here, that you feel that ache in your soul. That's kavod. That's that weight that you feel, that ache, that C.S. Lewis stab of joy, that pull. And the psalmist is saying, when we put ourselves in God's presence, when we allow ourselves to be shaped by Him, He is establishing His glory in us. He is putting His weight to us. We become truly ourselves when we see truly who God is. Jesus of Nazareth will come along teaching about this kind of life. And in Matthew chapter 5, he reads, um, he reads over the people and he says, look, this is what it looks like when shalom takes root. This is what it looks like when God's glory, his kavod, is present in the world amongst us and in us. And I'm just going to read, this is a section of scripture from Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to read this over you. And I just invite you to imagine this kind of world. You know, John Lennon in his song said, imagine this, this world that would come when there's no war, no more hatred. Jesus is saying, imagine this kind of world. So I want to I invite you just to, to, to read or, or just to uh, form a picture in your mind of what God is doing here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. You're blessed, which is another word for happy in the Greek. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. 
With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel lost or when you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that could never be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He is food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful or full of care, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God all around you in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not the kind of world that we receive, right? Look at how upside down Jesus' statements are. Compared to our achievement-oriented, pleasure-seeking culture, you're blessed when you care. You're blessed when you're content with who you are. You're blessed when you are able to let God purify the inside of you. You will see God. You're blessed when you're persecuted. God is inviting us to this sort of upside-down world, uh, you, inviting us to embrace com- community, not competitiveness. The metric of success in God's good world is do we know Him? Are we shaped by Him? And here at, at Ecclesia, when we, when we say what we're trying to do, why we're trying to be this community, why you're here this morning, when we say it real succinctly, we just say this. We want to be, be formed to love Jesus We want to be formed to love people. We want to be formed to live fully. And Jesus is saying right here in Matthew 5, this is it. This is the secret towards the good life that God has for every single person in here. This is the answer to the question that we started with. What is the good life? But if you remember in the story back in Luke 18, we started with a rich man who came to Jesus And he had it all together. He had it all figured out. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the man's response, he walked away. Jesus is inviting him. He says, come and follow me. But the man walks away sad because he has so much wealth. What we miss often about Jesus' way of happiness, Jesus' way of contentment in our lives, is that it is going to reshape everything that we have ever thought, everything that we have ever engaged. Jesus wants to redo the inside of our house. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he's not throwing it all away. He's not saying that, oh, it's all broken. It's all messed up. We're going to start all over. No, Jesus is like one of those master designers on HGTV, right? Like he comes into the old busted up farmhouse that's, you know, 100 years old, has all the plumbing problems, And he can make it like Joanna Gaines, kind of beautiful, right? Jesus is saying, you want the good life. It's only here. It's only here that you're going to find it. All the things that you're chasing, all the things that promise instantaneous pleasure will never satisfy you. But Jesus has a life for you. And I think, you know, in this story in Luke 18, I think Jesus knew this man's heart. 
He knew that his wealth was not an aid to his happiness. He knew that his wealth was actually pulling him away from God and that it was a hindrance. And so Jesus extends his invitation. He says, this stuff is getting in the way. Let's remove that and then come follow me. Those words that Jesus says, his invitation, come follow me, he only offers that to his disciples, people like Peter, James, and John. Jesus is saying, come follow me to each one of us, which in Jesus' language is saying, come and be my friend. Come see that my teaching, though it may be challenging, its ways are easy and light and that you will find rest for your souls. Come. Augustine said that you have made us holy for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Friends, I want to bear witness today. There is rest from the frenzy of distraction, of achievement, of the numbing effects of self-centeredness. I'm sure if we were to go around the room and ask you, what are your goals for this point of your life? What do you want to accomplish? We would come up with some amazing things. And can I just say, Jesus is wanting that for you. But he's saying, your goals are not the problem. The way that you're going about it is the problem. Your goal for joy and contentedness is not the problem. Your joy to achieve great things and to be known as a leader in your field is not the problem. Your goal to be the the head of your class is not the problem. But often we go about it in ways that are comparing ourselves to others. We go about it in ways that are trying to accomplish and achieve something that, that is apart from who God has made us to be. And so he's inviting us. He says, come, follow me. Start with me. Come to me with nothing. Sell all that you have and all that your life wants and desires will flow from there. Friends, there are many things that we bring to Jesus, and he's saying, leave it here. Now, it's for this reason that we, uh, we, when we approach God, we have to see that he's wanting to call us into the silence, into the quiet moments. And I think for many of us in here, as we close, I'm going to invite the band up here this morning. The reason that we don't approach God, the reason that we don't come near to him, is because we project our own discontentedness. We think God's upset with us. We think that God is angry with us, that we've somehow blown it. And at this point, God is like, uh, I can't really, can't really work with that. And we project that discontentedness, that discontentedness we feel often in our own lives, that frenzied, distracted pace, we project that onto God. And we say, well, I don't know, I got to get this thing figured out, and then I will come to Jesus. But what Jesus is saying to us, and what he says to us through a meal, as he offers us to come and to sit at his table, what he's saying to us is you don't have to figure it out to come here. I will come to you. I will come to you and to embrace you. If you've ever sat in a room with somebody you knew was judging you or, or held contempt for you, that's not a very comfortable place to be in. But what if, what if the God of the universe was saying to you today, I love you. I am content with how I made you. I am content with who you are. What if you're saying, come, sit down. Come join me for a meal. God's life that he offers to us is unconditional. But it is so radical, 
so upside down as we read in Matthew 5 that it will change everything about us. Friends, Jesus is inviting you. Not you, your neighbor, not somebody else sitting next to you, not the person who seemed like they had it all together during worship, you. And he's saying, come, I made you, I love you. You are mine. And the way that he does that each time that we gather is simply through a meal. It's as simple as bread and juice. It's saying that my presence will be mediated to you to show you that my life is not some disembodied life. It's not something that doesn't really exist. It is food and it is drink. Jesus is saying, come. Come see that your life will only be fulfilled. Come see that your life will only be at home when you find your rest in me. Would you pray with me, friends? And I'm going to invite you to the table. Beautiful Jesus, Lord, we thank you for this moment. God, we thank you where we could stop. Lord, we thank you for this moment that we could stop and hear words that are true about each one of us spoken over us. God, we bring to you the anxieties that we brought in. We bring to you the the sense of never being enough, and we lay it down at your feet. God, would your contentment this morning Would your contentment become our joy? God, you are calling us to radical change, Lord. You said to the man, sell everything that you have. But the reality is you meet us where we are. God, you come to where we are and you demonstrate your beautiful and unending love for us. So God, as we're here this morning... Lord, as we take this bread and this juice, these elements that you blessed and said that they would be a a mediation of your presence, God, or would you come to us? Lord, I thank you that your life is full of joy, full of true joy. We love you. To you, Lord, we pray in the beautiful name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.